so much for joining me today, uh, Megan and Daniel. And today we'll be talking all things about vampire bats. Um, and your group is very renowned in the CVR for being the bat group. Um, and in particular, we're going to be discussing the effect that culling has on bats' ability to spread viruses um, and other ways to potentially reduce this spread. Um, so I wonder if first, before going into these details, um, you could lay out the problem of vampire bats and the diseases they cause. Yeah, sure. So uh, vampire bats or common vampire bats are one of three blood feeding bat species in the world. Uh, they exist exclusively in the Americas. Uh, for the common vampire bat, it's found between like northern Mexico uh, into in, in, in the north and in the south down to Argentina, Chile and Uruguay. Uh, throughout that range, these are bats that feed exclusively on blood, uh, and they have to feed every night or every other night. Uh, and so that creates an incredibly high force of contact between species through this very intimate route of, of bats biting to feed on blood. So the main disease associated with vampire bats is rabies. Uh, in fact, rabies are vampire bats are the number one source of human rabies infections throughout most of Latin America. And at the agricultural level, uh, these are the, the rabies problem is quite extensive. So uh, we don't have exact numbers, but probably fair estimates would be around in the tens to hundreds of thousands of livestock are dying of rabies every year. And so that's not huge in terms of like the macroeconomic effect, uh, but it is impactful to, to at, at kind of a finer local scale. So these are largely subsistence farmers that are affected. And so the loss of just one or two animals can be quite devastating for these families. So a response to that disease burden in most countries uh, is to have legally mandated programs for killing bats. Uh, the way that is done typically is through a spreadable poison called vampiricide. Uh, this is basically an anticoagulant that's put into a gel or a paste, and it's spread onto the fur of, of one or more bats, which are then released. Uh, other bats within the same group lick the first bat, consuming the poison, and therefore die. Uh, it's been really well established that that uh, form of population control does reduce the bat population size as measured through uh, the incidence of bat bites on livestock and in some cases people. Uh, but whether culling the bats actually reduces the incidence of rabies transmission from bats to other species has been totally until now untested. Uh, and that's partly a technical problem. Uh, the issue here is that you don't just have culling going on, but you also have natural fluctuations in the incidence of rabies, and you have other interventions going on like livestock vaccination. So teasing apart whether any re reduction was attributable to culling or something else has been a real problem. Uh, and the other challenge is that a lot of locations don't have an extremely highly reported incidence of rabies. Uh, so if you just have a couple of cases in an area uh, every year, every couple of years, you really don't have the statistical power to be able to determine whether culling did any good or not. Uh, so one of the things that we took advantage of in our study was an area of exceptionally high rabies incidence, where it was possible to uh, to pull out effects of culling versus these other things, like just the background variation and rabies transmission or, or other interventions going on. Yeah, so maybe culling is not the best strategy as you lay out. There's lots of um, factors going into it. And so, Megan, do you want to provide a bit of background on other strategies that exist um, to sort of prevent this transmission or the disease caused? Yeah, so there are um, 
uh, there's a lot of interest in looking at other strategies for preventing the spillover of rabies. Um, in, in other species, rabies spillover has been prevented by vaccinating um, the reservoir hosts. So in Europe, this has been red foxes largely. And um, in North America, there's uh, several species um, which carry rabies. And um, there's been really effective vaccination programs um, of delivering vaccines inside food baits. So the animals are able to um, eat these vaccines, which can be um, sometimes dropped from helicopters to reach these um, populations that are sort of in the middle of nowhere. And so the animals eat these baits and then are vaccinated. This um, is not really a solution for vampire bats because as Daniel said, they drink blood. It's very difficult to put vaccine inside of blood, which you drop into the wild. So um, I've been looking at alternative methods of distributing vaccine um, to vampire bats, which we can uh, get onto a bit later. Okay, sounds great. Um, and how about the vaccines for the livestock affected by rabies or humans um, affected by rabies? So um, there are very effective vaccines available for humans and livestock. Um, however, they are relatively expensive as vaccines go. Um, and as Daniel mentioned, a lot of the people that are most affected by rabies in both livestock and humans um, are subsistence farmers and perhaps don't have the funds to regularly be um, keeping up with the vaccines because the immunity that they give isn't necessarily lifelong. Um, so vaccines might have to be um, given uh, multiple times, which is not very economically viable for some people. Another part of the problem is that it's hard to convince people to vaccinate themselves or their animals when both the cost is high, uh, but also the risk is somewhat sporadic. So rabies isn't a constant threat in all communities. It might disappear for years and then return. So it's a real challenge to incentivize people to uh to, to apply vaccines to themselves or their animals when you can't guarantee them that it's actually going to be a problem if they don't vaccinate. Uh, a second challenge is just the logistics of vaccine delivery, particularly in human populations uh, that are most affected. So this is, is largely remote communities in the Amazon. And so getting those people to interact with health authorities uh, has, has serious financial and logistical challenges for them because they often have like long boat rides just to get to a health center. And so going to those health centers for a full post-exposure prophylaxis treatment, which requires multiple doses of vaccine, uh, might be a real challenge for those people to, to be able to just physically get to a vaccination center. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, sort of localization and yeah, cost problems can definitely come into that. Um, okay, so I think that's a really nice background provided on um, all things vampire bats, rabies, um, and the techniques used to sort of uh, reduce the spread and zoonosis into humans. So, Daniel, do you want to speak about your latest paper um, where you, as you mentioned in the introduction, sort of did this first study into how culling might affect um, this spread of rabies within the bat populations and crossover into humans? Sure. So the study had two main components. Um, one of them was looking at whether culling bats reduced the incidence of rabies in livestock. Uh, and the second was looking at how the, uh, the culling influenced the spatial spread of rabies. Uh, we managed to address both of those questions by taking advantage of data from 
uh, a large-scale vampire bat cull that was carried out in southern Peru over the course of about two years. Uh, and this was a really exceptional opportunity because of the level of detailed data that was generated during the cull. So they kept track of you know, the number of bats that the poison was applied to, exactly where and when that happened. Uh, and they also importantly did questionnaire studies in, 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 in farmers to test uh, whether culling actually reduced the incidence of bat bites on livestock. Uh, which is an indication that culling actually reduced the bat population size. And then through linking up with the National Surveillance System of Peru, we were able to get data on when and where cattle uh, and other livestock species died of rabies before, during, and after the culling program. So um, through all those data, we were able to kind of integrate them together using some sophisticated Bayesian modeling uh, to be able to infer what was actually influencing uh, the incidence of rabies spillover from bats into cattle. So that's, I guess, the, kind of the, the background on on that burden side. Uh, then on the spatial spread side, um, this is a, it was a very interesting question because there's been a lot of speculation that interventions, particularly in wildlife reservoirs, can have unanticipated consequences. Uh, and a lot of that arises because we don't always know how animals behaviorally are going to respond uh, to the intervention that's carried out. So a famous example of this is, is badger culling here in the UK, uh, where it seems like um, after a cull, badgers might alter their foraging territory or their home range size. And so because badgers are moving around more on the landscape, that can actually facilitate the spread of bovine tuberculosis uh, into new, new areas. So we were interested in whether the same thing might be going on in the vampire bats, but obviously we can't like track the vampire bats in the same way that a larger animal like a, a badger uh, might be tracked. So instead, we relied on looking at virus sequence data. Uh, and this was a really neat opportunity en enabled by the, the national government of Peru, which provided access uh, to RNA um, from a, a large number, about 300 uh, livestock that died of rabies uh, in, the, in our study area, uh, both before and during the culling period. So by carrying out uh, phylogeographic analyses and combining that with some statistical analyses, we were able to look at whether culling influenced the speed that virus was moving across the landscape uh, in cold areas and in non-cold areas. Uh, so by combining those two approaches, uh, we were able to understand not just whether culling reduced the incidence of spillover from bats to livestock, but also whether it might have altered the spatial spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. And so what did you find? Uh, so we found that we could find really no impact whatsoever of culling on the incidence of rabies in livestock. Uh, so we kind of expected that if you reduce the bat population size, you might reduce the incidence of rabies in the bats and therefore the incidence of spillover to livestock. But at the very local level, uh, locations that were culled um, didn't seem to have fewer rabies cases after the culls were carried out. And when we looked at this in a slightly different spatial way, uh, in this case, looking at whether culling in a neighboring district might influence the probability of a rabies outbreak in your district, we actually saw that that risk was slightly elevated. Uh, and so that was suggesting that culling in one area um, was facilitating the spread of rabies into another area. And so that was an effect that we wanted to explore much more deeply with the virus sequence data. So we were interested in that, that possibility that rabies was, was accelerating the spatial spread of the virus. 
And so by carrying out uh, basically a, a reconstruction from the genetic data of how the virus spread across the landscape, we actually found that when culling was carried out um, in a preventative way, meaning before the virus had arrived to an area, it seemed to be slowing down the arrival. But when culling was carried out in areas that already had uh, rabies circulating, the virus seemed to spread out of those areas um, at a faster rate. And so we think what's happening there is that um, there is rabies circulating actively in some area. And when the cull happens, that's that's uh, disturbing the bats in some way, probably just making them fly away from the place where the culling happened. And that uh, means that any bat that's in that population, which is incubating rabies, is carrying that virus to a new area. So in that way, the sort of the net result here is that culling doesn't seem to do much for reducing incidence, but depending on how it's done, can either accelerate or decelerate the spatial spread of the virus into new areas. Is there any, or could you find the effect of the intensity of the culls? Was that something you looked at? Like if you have a very intense cull, which wipes out a larger proportion of the bats does that have a bigger effect than sort of milder culls? So we were not able to look at the magnitude of culling in the phylogeographic part of the study. Mm -hmm. It was really just whether culling had happened in that district in the in a previous time unit. Uh, we did look at the magnitude of culling, how, how the magnitude of culling influenced the burden of, uh, of rabies spillover to livestock. Uh, and again, that seemed to have a really negligible effect on local incidents, but perhaps a positive e effect on the spatial spread or, or on the probability of rabies appearing in a neighboring district. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, yeah, would, would somewhat impl imply that more culling it means it's more likely for the virus to be moved between districts. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that fewer bats as a result of um, culling results in fewer zoonoses events from bats to livestock, which I suppose is slightly counterintuitive. Yeah, for sure. For for a long time, the, the dogma has been, at least for rabies and vampire bats, the only good bat is a dead bat. Uh, and that assumes a fairly simplistic relationship between bat density uh, and rabies transmission. Uh, but we already know that rabies is a very peculiar transmission method. Like it has to be through a bite. Uh, and so unless bite rates scale with the population size of bats, um, that might not be true. So you could imagine like a, one rabid bat in a colony full of 100 bats or 200 bats, they might still bite the same number of bats altogether. Uh, and so that's one reason why uh, you might have this disassociation between the density of a bat population and the incidence of rabies. Uh, the other uh, factor that's quite important here is that the virus really moves around a lot spatially. Um, so you can have a bat population growing and being quite large, but actually having no rabies whatsoever, or you can have a relatively small bat population that just got invaded by rabies and has a much higher incidence of rabies. Uh, so because of that spatial aspect, um, you really break up any predictable relationship between uh, bat density and rabies incidence. And so, I mean, this is my lack of knowledge here in sort of bat behavior dynamics, but bats move quite fluidly, do they, from different kind of groups from one to another? It's not like they're in set colonies or like family groups. Well, vampire bats are actually quite a social species. 
uh, and they don't move around as as much as you might think, given their capacity for flight. Uh, so home range sizes are probably something like five kilometers, and they will move around between a couple of roosts in that area, um, but they're not making long distance migrations, uh, and there are still social groups that form within those roosts. Um, so that that's probably why we see so so much. Um, why we see the dynamics of the virus playing out as they do. If everything was totally mixed, you would just see kind of the virus perhaps synchronized across an area. But because there's just that right amount of spatial structuring of the bats, you can have a relatively rare dispersal event into an area setting off an outbreak. Um, that goes on for a while, and then it manages to get to another location, which until recently had not had rabies circulating. So that's really the maybe a simpler way of putting that is that the the spatial structure of the bats uh is is just enough that you don't have the virus wiping out everyone and sweeping through uh but rather to keep it um persisting in sort of a, a patchwork of of smaller outbreaks mm -hmm. that's really fascinating um and yeah it's really interesting that sort of like the culling not only doesn't sort of solve the problem in this small like location where they have the rabies problem, but also like it's sort of like spreading that to additional areas. Um, I suppose how have you have you been able to sort of try and communicate this knowledge with I suppose other bat researchers or um farmers in the area? And is like public engagement an avenue you can go down um to sort of like disseminate this information? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about how it's been presented, and then maybe Megan can jump on the public engagement side. So uh, up until now, we've presented this work to, to farmers' organizations within Peru, also regional governments, uh, and to the national government. And that's been done kind of throughout the project, where we're at different stages of having results. And of course, we were a bit anxious about doing that, uh, because the results were not looking so positive for, for a, a type of intervention that has been carried out for, for many years. So you, you might imagine some resistance to, to hearing that what they're doing isn't as effective as it, as they hoped it would be and has these potentially counterproductive effects on accelerating viral spatial spread. Um, but it's actually been much better received than I expected. Um, part of that is that we, we are beginning to provide a way forward uh, in terms of finding that that the, the the negative impacts of culling do seem to be very context dependent. So uh, culling before rabies arrives to an area is still having a, a, a beneficial outcome, um, which mean, which is providing a path forward to like, if you can manage to do these calls in a proactive way, uh, then you might both manage the size of the bat population, uh, therefore reducing bites on humans and livestock, and also not have counterproductive effects on rabies transmission. Uh, the other aspect that I think is really always important to communicate is that we're we're not advocating at this point for like a cessation of culling. Um, and that is largely because of the effects of bat bites on livestock and people that are apart from rabies. Uh, so that can be reductions in productivity for livestock, reductions in their value of their hides. Um, and on the human side, there's risks of secondary infections, and it's just really not acceptable for, for, for to kind of tolerate people being fed upon by vampire bats on a routine basis. So I think 
that's a, a really important way that I think we've found to communicate this work to to stakeholders, which otherwise otherwise might strongly disagree with us. So having to emphasize that this is the science, but we also still have to be pragmatic about how do we manage the, the variety of infectious disease and non-infectious disease threats coming from bats. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Megan, is there anything you wish to add on there? Yeah, so on the public engagement side of things, um, uh, I've been involved in trying to do a lot of um, public engagement and outreach in, in the UK, so working with the Glasgow Science Centre, for example, um, and we would really like to try and expand this to um, Peru, where we work, and also um, Costa Rica and some other countries where our group has expanded to recently, um, to get this outreach to the local communities where they're actually sort of most affected by these issues. Um, so uh, at the moment, working on an exhibit with the Glasgow Science Centre, and I think it would be really useful to um, translate this into um, Spanish and the other relevant local languages so that it all also can be um, transferred to these areas. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a great idea. So culling doesn't seem like the most effective way of reducing rabies transmission uh, between bats and into livestock and humans. Um, and Megan, you gave a nice description of how um, it's difficult to get the rabies virus into livestock and humans living in these communities. Um, but your PhD explored a really exciting um, new avenue uh, for a different kind of vaccine, um, which um, could be a potential uh, new sort of response. Um, do you want to give a bit of background to this? Yes. So, um, yeah, as, as I mentioned, it can be very difficult to um, physically distribute vaccines to humans and livestock because of access and money and also to bats because they're wild animals they don't come to you you have to go to them um, and bats in particular are a problem because they're they're very small they live in large numbers and they're nocturnal so there's lots of barriers to sort of physically accessing the bats to give them vaccine um, in in our in our work we do a lot of bat sampling so we do physically handle the bats and access their colonies but we, we're only able to access a fraction of, of the bat colonies that actually exist. You know, we're, we're um, a lot of work at the moment trying to estimate how many bat colonies exist from the few ones we actually sample. So there are a lot of bats out there that we don't have access to. So the question is, how can we give vaccine to these bats? And what I'm looking at is using a self-spreading vaccine, which um, uses a harmless virus vector. So um, in this case, a herpes virus, which is um, infects vampire bats naturally. And because it's a herpes virus, it's very species specific. So it's not going to infect anything else. So genetically modifying this herpes virus to express rabies virus glycoprotein and not doing anything else to it. So it's still able to transmit as normal, but it just has this little flag from rabies. And this turns it into a vaccine against rabies. What we would then do, hypothetically, is um, infect um, captured bats with this vaccine and then release them. And then they would transmit the vaccine to other bats, sort of spreading this vaccine without us having to put any effort into the actual distribution. Now, the, the challenge here is finding a suitable vector virus that's going to 
spread the vaccine to enough bats to make a difference um, and you know get them to produce a strong immune response but also be safe and not spread to unwanted off-target species. Um, so what I've been looking at is this, this herpes virus, which was um, found in some metagenomic sequencing of vampire bats, and basically seeing if that's a promising candidate for the vaccine vector. Uh, so in, in this paper, um, I was exploring um, some, some modeling of the herpes virus to see how it transmits naturally in the bat population and see if then this would make a, a good vaccine candidate. So um, how, how many bats does it infect and how quickly do those infections take place? Um, the, the data set that we were working with is um, some sequencing data from um, vampire bat saliva samples. So this was uh, sequencing a particular ver particularly variable region of the herpes virus genome. And we found that there are actually 11 different um, strains of herpes virus circulating in these vampire bats. And these um, 11 different strains from, I think, five ecoregions of Peru over six years allowed, allowed us to create 36 prevalence time series. And these time series, what we use to fit some transmission models to work out how the herpes virus actually moves within bats. Um, it turns out that it behaves much as we would expect other herpes viruses to in other species, which is it's good to know that our, our theories sort of come through there. Um, so we think that this virus um, causes lifelong infections in vampire bats, which from a vaccine point of view is really useful because it means that um, the virus is always inside them and herpes viruses go through these cycles of latency and reactivation. So when a virus reactivates, it will sort of internally boost the immune system of the bat because it will re-expose the immune system to the rabies virus antigen. Also, it means that in these periods of reactivation, the vampire bats can retransmit the vaccine um, well after they're initially vaccinated as well. So our, our models predict that this vaccine can reach up to 80% of the vampire bat population. Um, and the, the time scale that happens over is quite variable, depending how much initial effort you put in. If you only vaccinate, you know, 1% of your population, it's going to take several years. But if you put a bit more initial effort in, then you can get that um, vaccine coverage up much more quickly. So this will definitely be a, a balancing act, given on, you know, the risk of rabies over a certain time scale, um, depending on how much sort of time and effort you want to put in. So you mentioned um, using different like introduction rates and how it will um, yeah, shorten or lengthen um, the time it takes to reach this 80% level mm -hmm. in the population. What sort of um, introduction do you see this virus um, like taking the formats? Would it be a conventional vaccine in terms of what we think of as like an injection or would there be any other methods for introducing this to the bats? That's actually a really good question. So in the modeling paper, we just thought of it as a traditional injectable vaccine. So you inject your captured bats and then they um, sort of spread the vaccine by the herpes virus replicating and transmitting. There is another option um, if we are able to make the vaccine um, orally available. It could be combined with the current system um, that is used for culling, so that paste which we currently put vampiricide in, 
if we could put the vaccine there instead, we would be sort of combining two methods of sort of self-spreading, where there's the grooming self-spread and then following that, the physical virus transmission. So that would really increase that sort of initial rate of vaccine spread. Okay, yeah, that sounds like the ideal way of sort of, yeah, disseminating that into the population. Yes. Um, so now, now we've seen um, sort of how, how many bats it can actually infect and, you know, how long this takes. Um, the next sort of logical step was to look at what effect this would actually have on rabies. You know, does vaccinating 80% of the population actually reduce rabies outbreaks? Because as Daniel discussed, culling 80% of the population possibly not that helpful. So does this vaccination versus culling actually have um, a big impact? And it does seem to be very effective. So compared to an unvaccinated population, hitting this 80% mark can reduce the size of an outbreak. So the number of bats that are predicted to die from rabies um, over a two year period by sort of 90 to 95%, so really significant. It can also reduce sort of how long an outbreak lasts and um, sort of how likely it is for an outbreak to occur if you drop a rabid bat into a vaccinated colony. It's also um, useful to say that if you don't quite manage to make that 80% mark, you can still make a big difference. So um, vaccinating just 30% of your colony can still half outbreak sizes. So if you don't want to put quite as much effort in or if you're not quite as far along in the timescale of vaccine transmission, then you can still have some some decent reductions. Well, that sounds incredibly promising. Um, is there anything you want to add there, Daniel? Uh, I think it, it's, it's really important to realize that what we're talking about is still a, very much a hypothetical vaccine. Uh, and the work that Megan has done is, is incredibly exciting and promising. Uh, in terms of thinking about how it could be a complementary tool for preventing rabies outbreaks. But we always have to recall that what we're actually talking about is engineering a virus and releasing it into a wild population. And so, of course, we need to be incredibly careful with how we do that. Um, there's a lot of concerns around that approach because vaccine transmission in the past has not been positively associated with uh, with health outcomes. And probably the most notable example of this is through the, the polio vaccine, uh, which has reverted to a virulent phenotype and, and actually caused vaccine-derived polio. So we're obviously not trying to create a vaccine that does anything like that, but I think it is important to distinguish that the approach that we're taking is, is fundamentally different from that the outcome that happened in polio. Uh, the polio vaccine was a, a pathogenic virus which was attenuated and then transmitted accidentally. And in the course of that transmission, it evolved to return to the virulent original phenotype. Uh, in the case of our herpes virus that is selected for its characteristics uh, and then specifically not attenuated, um, then we really have a much different outcome of evolution. So rather than this possibility of, of becoming dangerous, uh, it's much more likely that that sort of herpes virus vector vaccine would simply just kick out the engineered part, like the, the rabies protein that's been put into it, or silence it in some way. So that is inconvenient for a vaccination program, but it's nothing dangerous that needs to be kind of worried about. Uh, another objection that people sometimes have is that in the course of creating such a vaccine, 
we might uh, be creating information with dual use importance. So if in the process of creating this vaccine, we discover something which might then be applied to a much more dangerous virus. And I think that's something that we always need to be thinking about in the back of our minds, um, but uh, also being cognizant of the fact that whatever, that we're not actually trying to make this virus more dangerous or more transmissible. If anything, I think Megan's results are showing that it's already quite transmissible. Uh, we don't, we, if anything, we'd be fine having it a little bit less transmissible. So I think there just needs to be a discussion in the community of people who's interested in transmissible vaccines over uh, what sort of modifications are necessary and allowable, and, and how do we oversee any, any genetic modifications that are required to make these vaccines a reality. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think these are really good things to consider. On your first point, um, especially when you are considering this reversion of the herpes virus to kind of kick out this um, rabies, you said it was the glycoprotein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is that how possible do you think that is? Do you think it causes a considerable fitness loss to the herpes virus having this rabies glycoprotein inserted into it? Um, I think the problem is there that we have really no idea what kind of fitness cost it would have. Um, you can imagine that, you know, whilst the herpes virus genome is quite big for a virus, um, this is still going to be a significant addition, which has no benefit to the herpes virus. So you can imagine that the natural course of evolution would be to kick it out. But um, without, you know, actual experiments adding this into the virus and then passaging the virus, we, we can't tell um, how detrimental it would be and how rapidly or otherwise the insert would be lost. Okay. And are these sort of wet lab experiments, as you mentioned, something you have planned in the future or does this come with a lot more consideration before you can start doing that? Well, I think the first step towards those experiments is actually isolating this herpes virus uh, and beginning the process of engineering it. Um, so that's something that is certainly high on our to-do list. Um, but of course, there are biosafety considerations that come into doing that, uh, not so much from the herpes virus itself, but from the fact that this would be a virus that we need to isolate from samples from bats, which may have other more dangerous viruses in them. So uh, we're currently exploring the possibilities of how we can uh, begin the process of isolating the virus and ultimately creating a vaccine. Mm -hmm. A I little bit further down the line, we, we're, we're really excited to, to start contributing to the development of this vaccine by doing things like initially looking at things like cellular tropism. Uh, from the data that we have, it looks like this is a, a very bat-specific virus, like probably is, is not going to infect even other bat species, other than the ones that are very closely related to vampire bats, much less uh, humans or domestic animals that you might expect could be exposed uh, to a vaccine, just given the nature of bats uh, feeding behavior. Um, but we'd like to rule those sorts of things out uh, using in vitro experiments. Uh, and then moving down even further down the line, uh, having a vaccine, we would of course need to be testing uh, whether it actually elicits protective immunity in bats and does it actually transmit. So there's a huge amount of work still to do uh, on the scientific and technical de technological development side, um, and also a lot of work that we need to be doing on the kind of science communication and advocacy side to make sure that if this technology is ever developed, it's actually going to be welcomed by the various stakeholders that could be affected. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So lots of lots of work to be done. But I mean, it sounds like a really promising avenue to be going down. I think we've heard a lot of really um, interesting things today um, to do with culling and then um, moving on to these, this idea of a transmissible um, vaccine. So Megan, do you want to provide a conclusion from today? And then we'll move on to Daniel. Yes, absolutely. Um, so as, as we've discussed today, uh, these uh, interventions um, that we'll be applying hopefully in the future really need to meet the needs of the communities um, that are facing these problems. So uh, culling is always going to be part of vampire bat management because of their biting behaviour. Um, and even without rabies, the economic and health costs of blood feeding. So we need these strategies to coexist with each other um, and learn whether there's uh, a balance to be struck between um, culling management and vaccination management in, in bats. And I, I think it's really great that these two studies came out right around the same time um, because they're really showing the path from the past to the future. Um, the culling study is showing that something that's an activity that's been carried out for over 50 years by governments uh, all around Latin America probably hasn't been as effective as people would have hoped. Uh, and that's on, on the one side, uh, a fairly negative message. Uh, and I never like to present a negative message without something positive. So Megan's paper really fills that gap of saying uh, not just this is the problem you need to stop, but having uh, the possibility emerging in the future of uh, really exciting technologies that could solve the rabies problem. And in a way that I think probably nobody would have anticipated uh, just five or 10 years ago, we would have thought that controlling rabies or any infectious disease within a wild bat population is just a fairy tale. So I think the the science is coming through now and showing pretty clearly that if if we decide to do this, it could actually be possible and it could work. So I think that's an exciting message to be able to communicate uh, both to, to the stakeholders on the ground that are affected and to other researchers in other fields that might be interested in applying these sorts of, of vaccines to, to wildlife disease problems, not just zoonoses, but also ones of conservation importance. Yeah. That was a beautiful conclusion um, and congratulations to you both for both papers um, and thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.